All right, grab your Bible and grab your bulletin. We are continuing our study of the means of grace. And so if you've been here, you, you probably have a basic idea of what we mean by means of grace for the sake of everyone who is just now joining us this morning. Let me do a quick recap of what we have discussed so far. So when we say the word grace, we noted in the first sermon in the series, the first Sunday of the year, that grace can mean a lot more than just that moment of salvation, that by God's grace, you have been saved. Biblically, the word grace is extended to apply to many other things. Spiritual gifts are called to grace. Your calling in the kingdom is called to grace. And grace can also be used kind of as a verb that you can be graced kind of in your spiritual journey. And historically in the church, we've called our growth in Christ a grace. And there's different means, or we would use maybe in our modern vernacular, tools, practical steps. There's things we can do, actions that we can participate in that help produce transformation in us. The goal in us is not that we become sinless, not that we get better at keeping our list of do's and don'ts and and obeying that list properly. Our goal as Christ followers is to be like Christ, to become His character, to be like Him. And of course, there's ethical implications to that. There's obedience implications to that. But at the heart, if you only become obedient to the Bible, but don't become transformed to Christ, then we would lump you into the category of the Pharisee. That's not our goal. We want to be transformed into the image of Christ. Paul says he's laboring with those churches until Christ would be formed in them. So when we think about how can we grow in Christ-likeness, how can my heart's desires be changed? Not just my outward behavior, but the very inner person. How can it be molded and shaped by the power of the gospel? Well, the answer to that question is means of grace. That's what we mean when we say the, the term. What are things we can do that help this process along? We can look at them objectively or subjectively. Now, we're getting grammatical, so I know some of you just tuned out. So let's just see if we can work with that term. The object is something that's outside of you, and then the subject is where? That is you. So if you write a paper, if you write it objectively, you don't say I. If you write a subjective paper, there's I can be anywhere in it. It's your opinion. That's what we mean. There's three biblical objective means of grace that are in the Scriptures. We are on number two this morning. The first one we discussed was last week, and what was that? Lord's Supper. I was like, oh man, was anybody paying attention? So we discussed the Lord's Supper last week. Today we're going to discuss baptism, and in the preaching of God's Word is the third, objective means of grace. These are kind of the formal means of grace that are objective. They are done outside of you. Now we have subjective experience in all of them, but they're objective things. The subjective means of grace usually aren't called means of grace. Instead, we use the word disciplines. Or if you're familiar with the older term as the ascetics of faith, that just was the Greek word for the shapers of faith, the things that shape you. And of course, in English, we don't use that word. We use the word discipline. So they train us. We're going to talk about those after we finish the corporate or objective means of grace. Lord's Supper baptism, and preaching of the Word. So we'll do preaching of the Word next week. Then we will move into the subjective things like prayer, meditation, scripture reading,
fasting. There's lots of things that will fall into that category. We're going to walk through all of those. So today, we're talking about baptism. Now, I have this tendency, when we get to talking about any topic, I like to think about the particulars and the details and sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture. For instance, like Christmas time for me is really difficult because I want to talk about how Jesus wasn't born in the winter, how it definitely wasn't on the 25th, how the wise men were not at the tomb. You know, I want to start working through these things, how there was no innkeeper that turned Jesus away. And like those things are all true. But the fact of the matter is if I focus on those things, we'll miss the bigger point that God became man. Mind blown. That's where the true emphasis is. Now with baptism, same sort of thing happens. And I want to talk about, well, sprinkle or immersion. I have an opinion on that. All right, do we do infants or People old enough to confess faith. I have an opinion on that. We're a Baptist church. We have an opinion on that. And it's a great topic, a great conversation. It will kind of get referenced at points today, but I'm going to do everything I can not to make that the point of the message. Instead, I want to talk about the sacrament aspect of communion, the spiritual gain of communion. I'm so used to talking about the Lord's Supper. Every time I say communion today, you can probably assume I meant baptism. That's going to get confusing. I'm sorry. We'll just, I'll do the best I can. So baptism. Um, I've lost my point. So when we talk about baptism today, what I want to emphasize is that there's something mysterious, beneficial to your soul in baptism, both individually and corporately. So to make that case, to demonstrate that biblically, we've got to do the same thing we did with the Lord's Supper. I meant that one on purpose. And go back and start before the New Testament and see how we get into the New Testament system of baptism. Because if you read the Old Testament and you look for the word baptism, you're going to struggle to find that word in there. Then you get to the New Testament and baptism is everywhere. So we want to make that transition. Much like from Passover to the Lord's Supper, let's go from whatever it is in the Old Testament to the baptism of the New Testament. So grab your Bible, 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5, we have a very interesting story. Now, technically speaking, this story has nothing to do with baptism, but it's going to kind of reinforce a system of thought for us. So in the Old Testament, they have a word that they use that is what we eventually get in English, baptize. And so in the original Greek, it's baptizo. Instead of saying it like that, I'm just going to say baptize because it's essentially exactly the same. English pronunciation versus Greek pronunciation. Now, you probably know, however, the Old Testament was written in what language? It's written in Hebrew. However, by the time we get to the New Testament, the primary Old Testament read by the populace was not the Hebrew version. What version was read? See how nerdy y'all are. The Septuagint. Oh, that's excellent. In other words, the Greek version. So, when we look at the Old Testament... From their perspective, we can see what Greek words they thought of when they read these Hebrew ideas. Does that make sense? So you take a Hebrew idea, you have to translate it to a Greek word, and Greek is what the New Testament will be written in. So we can see how they do word association. You ever play a game, word association? We won't do that here, but you can follow what I'm saying. So the word is going to show up. Baptize is literally in this passage. We won't read the whole story. I'm going to jump down to verse 8. This is 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to pick up in verse 8. We're going to work really quickly. We have this guy named Naaman 
who has come to Israel to be healed of leprosy, and he's a commander in Israel's enemy's army. You follow that? So he's from Syria, next nation up. They hate each other. He gets leprosy, and the slave girl that they had kidnapped from Israel says, hey, we actually have a prophet back home that could heal you. So Naaman comes down, comes to the king's palace, and is like, oh, where's this prophet? I want to be healed. The king gets really nervous because now he knows if he doesn't heal the guy that this, this could go very bad because they're the dominant nation. So they eventually send him to Elisha, not Elijah. Elijah's already on the chariots of fire thing. So we have Elisha, the replacement, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So in other words, king, don't worry. Send Naaman here. We'll take care of this. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Now that's really funny. If you're reading the story and know what's going on, because Naaman's this big deal that shows up, and Elisha won't even talk to him in person. He just sends his, his messenger out to talk to him. This is beautiful. Elisha knows what he's doing. And Elisha sent the messenger saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now, the word wash there just means wash. This is theological lingo in their world, because if you go to the Old Testament, you read their law, how often do they have to wash something? All the time. Anytime something becomes what? unclean, key lingo. If it gets dirty, it cannot be used for sacred use. It cannot be used with anything holy. You have to be washed. It has to be washed. So same lingo, layman has what disease? What did I say? Leprosy. How was that treated in the Old Testament law? Is that clean or unclean? Very unclean. So unclean, you couldn't be in the town, let alone, you know, the temple. You couldn't even be in town. And if someone walked up to you, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, have leprosy, get away. Like, this was a big deal, unclean. So this is highly theological language. Leper shows up. Elisha says through his messenger, now, you know, you need to go wash. That's how they handled this, very theological lingo. So you need to go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. Very theological lingo. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. So, I mean, what's Naaman expecting? I mean, he's a big deal. His miraculous work should look like a big deal. And Elisha's not even going to participate. Yeah, that's just hilarious. I'm not even going to leave the house, dude. You, you just go do this and no pomp, no, no fanfare, no ticker tape parade. You know, No, you just go do this on your own. So he's mad. And then... So let's see, yeah, yeah, verse 12, and are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. He said, we have better rivers at home than this nasty little Jordan River. I'm not getting in that. So he turned and went out in rage, but a servant came near him and said, my father, is it a great word that the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? In other words, like in modern English, like, just, just try, you know, before you leave. I mean, it's pretty straightforward and simple. No one would even know, right? They're not here. It's quiet. Just, just go try it out and see. So, um, with verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself. 
seven times in the Jordan. Now, interestingly, I used the word dipped. Again, I said I wouldn't camp out there, but what does it mean to dip? That's the word baptized, by the way, in the Greek. So he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. All right, so this word, he baptized himself seven times in the water. He comes up out of the water, and what happens to his leprosy? It's gone. All right, so this word group, the baptized word group, is connected with the wash word group. I know it's technical language, but in their theology... These words have meaning, and when you use the same words in the New Testament, by default, unless you're changing the meaning, you're adopting the meaning that came with those words. And so they're using the same words in the New Testament to kind of bring in the entire ritualistic cleansing process into what's going on in baptism. So if we're filling in our first blank, so purification rituals in Judaism representing the cleansing of objects and people for sacred use. This is their worldview. You cleanse something to make it appropriate for holy use. You set it apart by dunking it, by dipping it, or to use the Greek word, by baptizing it. You put it under the water. You've made it clean. You've made it holy. All right, now let's jump to the New Testament. So the Gospels all begin with a similar sort of narrative. Now, Matthew starts with the genealogy and then jumps straight to the birth of Jesus. Mark's gospel skips the birth of Jesus and jumps straight to the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke's gospel, of course, has that longer narrative. We get even John's birth narrative and then Jesus' birth narrative, and then we get to John the Baptist. And we get all of these birth narratives or different starts to the gospel, but all of them begin with this idea of John the Baptist showing up on the scene and getting people to be baptized. So I want to look at Matthew's version Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to look specifically at verse 4 and following. So John the Baptist, and why is John the Baptist called John the Baptist? Because he baptizes. Not because, just let's be real clear about this, he was not the first Baptist. Okay? I have been taught that before. Okay? He is, I am a Baptist, but that is not true. Okay? He is not the first Baptist. There's no direct line of descent. It, that's not how this works. This baptism didn't count anyway. It was a different baptism. People baptized in that baptism had to get rebaptized. so this doesn't even count, even if you were doing that. But so, that's just, a, so again, it's like Christmas. You know, I gotta, I'm trying to avoid those topics, but they happen. Verse 4, so now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, they were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So baptism here is connected with confessing sins. In fact, we see it in, the, in Mark's gospel, 1-4, it says a baptism of repentance. We get the same lingo in Luke's gospel. All three synoptic gospels are saying in the same form that this baptism is connected with their repentance. So let's think about what the word repent means. I love asking people what the word repent means. I can tell whether or not they've had church background or not. If they say to turn around or to quit doing sin, I'm like, you grew up in the church. That's not the right answer. Okay, so here's the word repent actually means to change your mind. It's literally the word in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, means you change your mind. Now, I do not mean when I go to Wendy's and I thought 
I wanted a double stack with no onions. And then I changed my mind and got the, the bacon double cheeseburger $5 biggie bag. I changed my mind. That's not the kind of change of mind I'm talking about. That's not repentance. All right, repentance would be more like I showed up to get the Baconator triple patty. Ooh, okay, Baconator triple patty, extra bacon, and get a salad instead. I know, right? That's, that feels dramatic. I know some of you, that's not a big deal. All right, no, so in context, all of these Gospels set the scenario the same. Jesus shows up, John shows up and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's say that in English. Let's say North Koreans showed up in America and said, repent, for the kingdom of Korea is at hand. What do they mean? They mean change sides. This is your opportunity to be on the right team as we march through the land. Now, this is America. Of course, none of us would do it. But you follow what I'm saying, right? That's the lingo. So Jesus is saying, you got to become a traitor to your current kingdom, and you're going to join up and change allegiance to a new kingdom. The outward sign that shows you have done that was baptism. So be baptized in this new kingdom, to this new life, to this new world, and repentance therefore meant, yes, it included turning from sin, but included turning from everything in the world to your submission to Christ. You're changing worldview, you're changing king, you're changing Lord, you're changing master. That's what it means to repent. So let's fill in our next blank. So baptism during John's ministry was an outward sign of repentance prior to the impending arrival of God's kingdom. So it's an outward sign of repentance prior to the impending arrival of God's kingdom, which is why if we follow down in Matthew's gospel, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He's like, no, no, I'm not sure you, you can't do this. You, you can't join teams. You're, you're literally the leaders of the wrong team. Why are you coming out now? If they were actually coming out there for genuine repentance, he would not turn them away. That's not why they're there. They're, they're there antagonistically to see what's going on. But John uses that lingo. Like, this is how you're fleeing from the wrath of the coming kingdom is by joining the coming kingdom. That's what we mean by repentance. Now, all the Gospels follow that story immediately with Jesus showing up to John. And what does Jesus do in all the Gospels when he meets John at the Jordan River? To everyone's bewilderment, he gets baptized. Now, we know he didn't have any sin. He didn't have to change teams. He didn't have to repent. He's not, he's, he's not changing worldviews. He's literally already the king of the kingdom that is coming. But across the board, he uses this, he says literally, to fulfill all righteousness. Because John is like, no, 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 no. I, you do the baptizing. I can't do this. I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill all righteousness, you will baptize me. And John, of course, submitting to the king, says, all right, let's get in the water. And, and he does it. Then the Father speaks from heaven and says audibly, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And in all the Gospels, this marks the beginning of Jesus' outward ministry, his public ministry. So Jesus was baptized by John to mark the beginning of his public 
ministry. Now, we've introduced three elements, and we've connected them all to baptism. So to make sure you're following this, and we made them the blank so it would be clear, baptism has a cleansing idea, it has a repentance idea, and it has a beginning idea. All three of these are very fundamental for understanding what baptism will mean in the early church. So cleansing, repentance, beginning. So let's move on from that. So the institution of baptism. Of course, you probably know the next verse we're going to read, but let's look at it anyway. Go to the end of Matthew's gospel, the one we're already in. So go to chapter 28. We're going to read verse 19. And I know my good Southern Baptist background folks can quote this one because this was, this was up there with John 3.16. And if I said, go therefore, you could probably give me the rest of the phrase. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So no matter what, we have the bare basic command from Jesus that this is what we do. We don't need anything else. Technically, we get in the sermon right there and say, should we baptize people? Yes, Jesus said to. All right, it's that simple. We are going to do a lot more than that, but I want to make very clear that this is Jesus' institution. Just like he's the one who said, do this in remembrance of me, in reference to communion. Jesus is the one who says, you go baptize. So this isn't the church collectively coming together later and saying, hey, what would be a good symbol for us to mark the entry point into the kingdom of God. That's not how that works. Jesus hands us the symbol. Much much like circumcision in the Old Testament is God's idea. It's given to them. In fact, all of this stuff in the Old Testament from the Mount Sinai is given verbatim from God in the New Testament. Lord's Supper and baptism are given as direct commandments from Jesus himself. So Jesus commanded that his disciples baptize new converts into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why you'll see in in virtually all churches, there are exceptions to this, but for the most part, churches baptize in a Trinitarian form. Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we would say that's the correct form, and even so much that it doesn't count. It's got to be in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that's how it's worded here. So he commanded that that be done. Next, let's go to Acts. So skip the other three Gospels. Go forward in your New Testament to the book of Acts, and we're going to look shortly after the beginning of the early church. So this is the day of Pentecost, and if you remember what the day of Pentecost is, this is after Jesus has ascended, he said, hang out in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, they start speaking in tongues, they're preaching the gospel in different languages, then there's this whole interaction about, hey, are y'all drunk, what's going on? And Peter brings everybody together and preaches a sermon. During that sermon, he starts explaining what Jesus did, how he was crucified, how he was raised from the dead. He's going through all of the stuff God's commanded you to repent. And then they stop him and say, what shall we do? The people listening. These are Jews listening to the gospel being proclaimed, saying their heart is cut. You've had that moment of genuine Holy Spirit-filled conviction. What do I do? There's a panic in this question. And Peter says this. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So not only did Jesus command us to be baptized, the very first opportunity the church has to have new members, what does Peter say? 
be baptized. This, this is, he's obeying Jesus directly, setting the precedent, setting the form for how this will go forward. So the Apostle Peter, next blank in your outline, the Apostle Peter commanded that new believers be baptized in connection with repentance. Same sentence. Repent and be baptized. So we're connecting repentance again to baptism, just like we saw in John's gospel. But let's go further. So if you're in Acts, keep going and you'll hit the book of Romans. And Romans is written by whom? Paul, the apostle Paul. So let's see what Paul says about this in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We'll actually come back to this passage in a minute and look at it a little bit more in depth. We're going to look at chapter 6, verse 3. So he's making an argument in this text for why someone who's a believer would not want to continue in sin. There should be a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of desire. And so he's just running through this as though it's basic, bare-bones theology. Everyone in the room should know this already. This is how he's using this expression. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is very basic for Paul. But he just connected baptism to our mystical union with Christ. Mystical union, of course, that's a very theological term, goes back in church history a long way, but the idea of us being Christ-like actually, historically, meant us coming into union with Christ spiritually, our spiritual union with Christ. Paul saying and connecting that to baptism, that in baptism, you became one with Christ. In this case, he's talking about in Christ's death death to sin in particular. So the Apostle Paul is the third blank under the institution of baptism. The Apostle Paul taught that baptism was the symbolic entry point into Christ's body, the symbolic entry point. Now, just to reinforce this in Paul's letters, go a few um, books further, Galatians 3.27, it says, for as many as you were baptized into the name of Christ have put on Christ. So putting on Christ and being baptized into Christ were linguistically the same. So your union with Christ is symbolically done. At the beginning point is baptism. Now what I'm hoping you see is that there's this cleansing of sin element to baptism. There's a repentance element to baptism. And then there is also this beginning or entry point idea connected with baptism, which is exactly what we saw in the first three blanks. Now, here's how I want to transition from this point. So that's the background stuff. That's the formal institution stuff. The bare basic reason we baptize is because Jesus commanded us to, and then symbolically it connects to the cleansing, it connects to repentance, and it connects to the beginning point of our Christian journey. Now I want to talk about our experience of baptism. We're going to look at that individually. So for me, when I get baptized, the experience I have theologically and sacramentally, to use that mysterious word. And then we're going to talk about what it is for the congregation to experience baptism. So historically, you did not baptize on your own. It's always been a work of the church. And so you did it together as a church. And so that'll be important as we look at the next part. So the sacrament of baptism, bottom part of your bulletin, for the individual. All right, number one, baptism is a special outward sign of your new birth into Christ. 
So, so I grew up in church, and I know many of you have a, a similar experience. And for me, growing up in church, in some ways muddied the water for what it meant to truly become a follower of Christ. Because these people who were prodigal sons, so to speak, these great sinners, so to speak, they come to faith in Christ, and it's dramatic. It's powerful. I, I did all this stuff, and then this evangelist told me about Jesus, and then I got baptized. My life changed. Well, that wasn't my story. I've been learning the gospel since I could hear. I've been rehearsing the ABCs of salvation since, you know, at least fifth, I mean, uh, five years old in the, the kindergarten class, the pre-K class. We're learning these things. I knew all this theology. And so you start asking, well, like, well, where's my dramatic moment? And then we start emphasizing, especially in the Baptist world, that prayer. Did you pray that prayer yet? That It's almost like there's four, you know, means of grace. There's the Lord's Supper. There's baptism, there's preaching of the word, and there's the sinner's prayer. Well, the problem is the sinner's prayer is not in the book. So it's the wrong place to put your hope. It's not a means of grace. And we, we may love to, and you may get saved during praying a prayer. That's, that's I did. Uh, it's not like that's not possible. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not where the emphasis should be. Instead, we have a symbol, very powerful symbol, of going under that water and coming up a new person in Christ. You have been identified corporately, publicly, outwardly as a believer and follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. And we have that, well, how do I know I'm proclaiming Christ publicly in the right way? I don't want to deny him. Well, let's be baptized. In a lot of other cultures, for us, it's, it's easy. We live in a culture where getting baptized is, you just show up and you do it. In some cultures, baptism could mean death. For you. It could mean you're ostracized from your family. You could literally lose your livelihood because you get baptized. And believers in that context, you think they're more likely to skip baptism or more likely to do it faithfully? They're, they do it faithfully there. Uh, there's a story from David Platt I love. He was in a context where this was exactly the question. People were going to be persecuted if they went under that water. And someone asked, so, so I mean, there's so much risk involved. Why, why are you willing to do this so readily and the answer was Jesus commanded me to he's not my master if I don't obey him it's like I can imagine the pen dropping in the background as we go wow we have this outward sign that God has given us that we can embrace so it's beneficial to us that way but more than that baptism reminds us that our sin has been washed away by the blood of Christ now, I want you to see a very interesting text this is 1 Peter chapter 3. So this is really close to the end of your Bible. When you find Revelation, come back forward just a few pages, and you'll find 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And this is one of those few times we get a, a direct teaching about baptism. Sometimes the New Testament assumes things and we have to kind of put the pieces together. This one's not that. So 1 Peter 3, 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Now this was going back to the um, Noah and the ark and the repentance and the salvation of eight persons. So baptism corresponds to this. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good, or we could say clean conscience. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having already been subjected to him. So it's not that your body gets clean when you are being baptized. Rather, that represents your appeal to Christ for a clean conscience. Now, how does your conscience get clean? The whole book of Hebrews is designed to answer that question. It's by the blood of Christ cleanses us so inwardly that the conscience itself is purified. You ever have a guilty conscience? It can eat you alive, can it not? This is part of the beauty of the gospel. We see baptism. My conscience can be purified. The symbol that my sin has genuinely and permanently been washed away by the blood of Christ. This is an experience we have in baptism. Third, Baptism encourages us to daily die to sin. So that's back to the Romans 6 passage where Paul said, do you not know that every one of you has been baptized in the name of Jesus has been baptized into his death? And he's making this argument that just as we die with Christ in baptism, we raise with him in new life. So we were baptized therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism reminds us daily to walk away from sin. Now that may lead us to say, well, hold on. How can it remind us daily? If, how many times, New Testament speaking, would one be baptized? Well, just the once. So how is it that that one baptism that for many of us was years, for me decades ago, um, how can that one baptism still be reminding me to walk away from sin daily. It's because baptism has a corporate nature. So let's look at the next three blanks as we think about how baptism is sacramental for us as the body. So baptism, number one, portrays the power of the resurrection. You ever been excited to see a baptism? Have you ever been bored to watch a baptism? I don't think I have. Like, especially when the body gathers together and we see a person go into the water and come back up, and then we say that baptismal chant, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I know baptism Sundays, I mean, like, my energy level, my attitude, my delight, my joy in the Lord is, like, off the charts during those moments because it reminds me of the power, glorious power of the resurrection. Do you remember last week when we baptized Judah? In the, well, that was last week, wasn't it? And time sometimes just gets away from it. Yeah, one week ago, we, we baptized Judah and came out of the water, and it was just like, man, yes, it's a glorious day. Like the song we sang today, the resurrection happens daily throughout the world. I mean, how exciting would it be if we had a baptism every Sunday? And I don't want to fake them, but a genuine baptism, someone giving their life to the Lord, reborn, newly born in Christ. It reminds us of that. It portrays us, portrays the resurrection of Christ in us. Second, baptism encourages and strengthens faith. Well, this is just the basic element of how faith works. We've, we've spent time on this in other series, so I'll just give it a very short mention here. But faith grows in response to experience with God. It's the only way your faith gets bigger. Right, you can start with a mustard seed faith, but the mustard seed is supposed to grow up into what tree in the garden? Using Jesus' illustration. Maybe the tiny seed is where it starts, but now it's the big tree in the garden. That growth happens through our experience of God. Right? It's, it's not this some crazy idea of the less I know and 
the more I believe, the greater faith I know. The more and greater faith I have, the more I know God. That's the direct correlation between the two. Every time we see baptism, it's also true every time you take the Lord's Supper, every time we hear the preaching of God's Word, every time we do these things and experience God, what's happening to our faith? It strengthens, it grows, it emboldens, it gets greater, it gets heavier, it gets more solid, it becomes more of a rock, it becomes the foundation of my life because I'm experiencing God through it. Every time we see a baptism, this is what happens. And last one, number three, Baptism provokes our hearts to believe the gospel. Here's what I'm talking about. I know sometimes we can look at this world and it feel hopeless. Like, wow, we're post-Christian. We had our heyday. And this world is now falling to pieces. And there's a lot of senses in which, yeah, that's exactly how we feel when we look at the news, when we see our political environment, just even just school systems and our local world and the relationships we have. And it seems like, and sometimes this feels hopeless. The reality is every time someone gets wet in that water, that's a very strong reminder that this gospel saves people. This gospel transforms lives every day. And every time we see that happen, we're reminded, hey, that gospel works. That gospel saves. So it strengthens, it provokes my heart to believe in this baptism. So a quick word on some pragmatics going into this, I get a lot of questions about baptism over the years, and so I'm going to answer two pragmatic questions that, that refer to baptism. One's, one that's been asked recently, but asked dozens of times, another is one that I've heard just over the years, and my, myself, I walk through the same thing. We've grown up in a day and age that has a very significant evangelical subculture, so that even in Jackson County, as secular as we may feel like it is sometimes, it's almost impossible to meet someone that doesn't have church background in some way, positive or negative, often, unfortunately, negative. Um, and it's hard to meet someone who's never been baptized. Almost everyone I meet at some point in their lives, in some scenario, either as an infant, sprinkled in the Catholic church, or they grew up Methodist or Presbyterian, or they've been to a more revivalistic Baptist background church, and every time they got resaved or rededicated their life, they've got baptized. And I meet people who've been baptized like 20 times, you know, and the question's like, well, which one counted, or did any of those count? And it's like, okay, well, that's a difficult question, fair enough. So for me, personally, here's how I think through the question, because I grew up in church, in a church that emphasized the sinner's prayer, and by the time I was old enough to say the sinner's prayer is when I said it. You know what I'm saying? So I prayed that sinner's prayer as a six-year-old in vacation Bible school. And, you know, I was doing it because that's what you're supposed to do. I prayed the prayer, and then the preacher, like, next week, dunks me under the water. I mean, church is excited. The reality was, I didn't have any idea what was going on. I didn't have a clue. So we believed in believer's baptism, but that's not really what happened. And so years go by, I'm growing up in the church, and I have this moment one day when I'm 11 years old, and I could, I could take you literally back to the spot where this happened, this light bulb moment, conversion. This is Jesus speaking into the tomb, Brian, come out, moment for me. Eyes open, I realize I've not been doing this. I wasn't really a follower, and I'm following now. Like that faith moment happened for me. It was glorious at the time, conversion took place. Well, the years go by and I realize, you know, I've been baptized, but technically, I believe in believer's baptism. I've been baptized, but I wasn't a believer when I got baptized. And as a Baptist, 
We, the order is very important to us that you believe and then get baptized. So for me, my act of obedience meant if that's what we believe, I need to be baptized as a believer. So I ended up getting baptized at 16. So my, my order's all off. One baptism at six, got saved at 11, and then what I would call my Baptist baptism at 16. For me, that was an issue of conscience. I had to do that. I'd been commanded to be baptized, so I needed to be baptized. The order was significant for me. I have friends in ministry who have my experience without the second baptism. So I'm not in any way advocating that you're going to hell if you get this order wrong. It's not that. It's not a thing. But when it comes to matters for me of conscience, this one's one of those things we've been commanded to do. Also, the other question that's common is, historically, this is true across every denomination, um, assuming they have a system of theology. If they don't, maybe this question hasn't come up. But for the most part, this is universal. You get baptized before you can partake of communion. And so because of this you know, way we've kind of muddied the water in evangelical culture, some of us... We didn't get rebaptized, but we're taking communion. And, and I would say that if you theologically agree with believer's baptism and you have not had that believer's baptism, I would say to, to have a high view of these ordinances, I would wait taking communion and not take it until you had a valid believer's baptism. Now, we're not the kind of church who's going to police you. And, and hey, I'm checking you. I don't know. That's not us. That's not our attitude. But we do have a high view of Scripture and a high view of the practice of these ordinances. And I would encourage you to then, if you're thinking through, I'm not even sure where I am on this scale, I would love to have that conversation. I'd be happy to. It wouldn't be a condemning conversation at all. It'd be a, I want you to get the most you can out of the ordinances. Paul, talking about the Lord's Supper, said when you're gathering, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. I want it for you to be for the better. I want you to get some genuine satisfaction, some spiritual nourishment from the act of baptism, from seeing others baptized, and from taking communion. And I'd love to help you on that journey. So please see me after service if you have questions about that. Not sure where you are, just want to sit down and maybe we need to have a meeting and talk about it. But I want to make sure we get this point clear. I have an opinion on the mode, the method, the age, all of that when it comes to baptism. But that water does not save you. The blood of Christ saves you. I had a high view of the, the ordinance. God told us to do this. We should do it. We know that's not, that's not what saves. The blood of Jesus applied to your heart by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is what saves. That's what John the Baptist said. A guy's coming after me, talking about Jesus. He's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And you will be transformed. So the most important takeaway is if we've had that baptism, we need to walk in newness of life because we've experienced the power of the resurrection in our souls.